Well, these verses that we just read really are a difficult passage. Uh, I read a lot of commentaries, but then I went to look at the sermons of big-name preachers, and it's interesting how many big-name preachers conveniently omit this passage in their preaching cycle through Exodus. Um, This is the kind of passage that really tests our mettle and our commitment to preaching the Word, the whole Word, and nothing but the Word. This is exactly the kind of passage that, that we don't like. It's the fly in the ointment of the, of the narrative that so many preachers, myself included, want to make about God. For the last multiple weeks, I've been up here telling you from the text how God is for you. But then we come to a passage right here. We're just a few verses after God has been patiently wooing Moses He's ready to kill him. What gives? It's this type of passage that causes us to check our theology and evaluate the God we serve. Is the God you have placed your trust in the God of the happy passages only? The God who affirms you and welcomes you and receives you no matter what? Or is the God you serve the living, consuming fire of holiness and righteousness who calls what is not? Who is the God you serve? Now this passage, practically speaking, shows us Moses' first faltering steps of obedience. He's received the call But now he's going to embark on his mission, and we see that he's still very much in the infancy stages of his commitment to and obedience to God. So I want to keep it short today because we have a baptism, but there are three important truths that I believe that this passage, at least three important truths that this passage teaches us. Uh, From verses 18 and 20, it's one thing to commit it's another thing to take the first step, okay? I uh, recently, Kay had us watching Ma and Pa Kettle movies. Do you remember Ma and Pa Kettle from a few decades ago? All right. Um, pa Kettle is, 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 has a kind, sweet disposition, but he's, he's a lazy, good-for-nothing bum. And he's always saying, oh, I'll get this fixed. I'll take care of that. But guess what? He never does it. I remember with excitement, all the excitement and exuberance of, of when it was myself and several other young men lining up at the MEPS, the milita- military entrance processing station in, in Des Moines, Iowa, to raise our right hand and swear to, to serve. Just the excitement, the bravado. And I remember fast forward several months to when it came time to get on that bus. That was a lot harder than simply raising your hand and saying, here I am, Uncle Sam. In the same way, in this passage, we see that Moses has received a call, but he appears to have taken some stutter steps, and he needs to be reminded to get in gear and get going. So when 
when the narrative ends at the end of verse 17, he's at Mount Sinai, or Horeb, which is its nickname, which is about 150 miles southwest of Midian, his home. So I'm going to borrow a page from the, the, the Cotton Patch Bible, and I'm going to put it in the vernacular, okay? So here it goes. When God called Moses, he, was, he had been living here in Paulding County for 40 years. But he had somehow meandered over with his sheep, and he was in Birmingham. And God's call to him was, I want you to go over to Jackson, Mississippi, and let my people go. Get, get them out of there, because there's nothing good in Mississippi. Okay? But Moses is in Birmingham with his father-in-law's sheep, so what does he have to do? Well, before he can go to Jackson, he needs to get back to Paulden County. So he walks himself and those sheep back to Paulden County. And that's a lot of time to, walking with sheep to think about what you're going to say. And when he gets there, verse 18 is what comes out of his mouth. Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Please let me go back to my brothers to see if they're still alive. Now, brothers here probably means his countrymen, not, not his, because he had one brother. And let me see if they're still alive. Seeing if someone is still alive appears to be a biblical idiom for let me see how they're doing. Okay, so let me go check on my fellow Hebrews and see how they're holding up. Is that what God had commissioned him to do? No. He was probably thinking, my goodness, I just watched a bush not burning, not being consumed, even as, that was, even as it was on fire. A voice talked to me from that fire. I threw my stick down. It turned into a snake. My hand turned. That, that, and he told me to go to Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. And th- that's crazy. Or at least it sounds crazy. I can't tell my father-in-law that. And so he comes up with this story. You see, he's at the place where so many of us hang out for years, which is we personally believe, but we're kind of embarrassed about it. I love Jesus, but I I don't really want to talk about it. Oh, I'll go to church on Sunday, and I I won't go out out bar hopping with my friends, but, but I don't really want to explain why, because they might think I'm crazy. And what's Jethro's response? Go in peace. Now, this is important. Relational Dynamics 101 right here. Leave well when you go. Kids, when you move out, leave well. Even the prophet of the Lord thought it was important to get the blessing of the head of his house. Leave well. In my time in the ministry, especially when I was a youth pastor a couple decades ago, I remember how hard it was for so many parents to countenance the idea that my own child might be called to missions, especially to a dangerous, horrible place. Lord, send someone, just not my kid. And they resist the notion. Jethro here was being asked to give up his daughter and his grandchildren for his, according to the story his son-in-law just gave him, 
some, some crazy scheme. He hasn't mentioned Egypt in 40 years, and all of a sudden he wants to go back to Egypt? That's a dangerous place for any non-Egyptian. And you want to put my daughter and my grandkids in danger for this crazy scheme? But what does he say? Go in peace. Contrast that to the response of Laban back in Genesis 34 when, 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 when I, Jacob flees because that's the only way to get away. And Jacob, or Laban comes up to Jacob and says, these girls are mine, the kids are mine, your flocks are mine, everything you see is mine. Parents, grandparents, your kid, your grandchild may get a calling on their life that's difficult for you to swallow. But difficult to swallow is not the same as wrong. Commend them to the grace of God and let them go. We see in Exodus chapter 18 that Moses had profound respect for Jethro. He comes back and he's falling on his face, paying homage to his father-in-law. And we'll see the advice he gives later. But right here, Jethro is a blessing to his son-in-law. Moses is clearly scared. He's clearly, he's clearly uh, discombobulated by God's call on his life. And Jethro, instead of saying, what in the world are you thinking? says, go in peace. So kids, leave well, and parents, trust your kids and your grandkids to the grace of God. In verse 21, or in verse 19, it says, The Lord said to Moses, In Midian, go back to Egypt. In other words, not only had God told him to go while he was at Sinai, but here, weeks, months later, he's still dragging his feet. He's scared. He's nervous. He's fearful. And we know he's fearful because God gives him a word of assurance. Look, everyone who wanted to kill you, they're dead. So don't worry about it. Get going. Moses was dragging his feet. Now, how many of us have said yes to the Lord but we're so filled with apprehension that we kind of stall out. How many times have you resolved to answer the call of God and do something, but yet when it push comes to shove, you're, you're hesitant to actually pull the trigger and, and do it? Sometimes the hardest step is the first step. Sometimes what we need to do is take that initial step and the sheer momentum of that step will propel us into a second and then a third and a fourth and before you know it, we're at Egypt. What calling has God placed in your life that perhaps what you need to do is stop saying okay and start marching? Start doing. The second thing this passage teaches us is that God's plan is for his glory, not our comfort. All right? In chapter 3, and here in verse 21, God tells Moses to go do something. Right? 
Okay, so go. So the call of God is clearly upon Moses. And back in chapter 3, we're told that, the, that God knows that the king of Egypt is the kind of man who will not let the people go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. Okay, so God follows that up by saying, I will outstretch my hand and smite and do all these wondrous things. Okay, great, I got it, God, wonderful. But then here, in verse 22 or 21, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now that phrase causes a lot of heartache for a lot of people. We don't have all day to talk about it, but the first thing I want to mention is this. How frustrating it must be for Moses to hear, I want you to go get these people out of Egypt, but oh, by the way, I'm going to harden his heart so he won't let them out of Egypt. What is it, God? Do you want them out of Egypt or not? You're sending me to go. You're risking my life. And you're telling me here that you're going to harden his heart so that he won't let them go? What on earth? Well, we have to remember as a point of sheer obedience that God's call on your life is not a sign that the walls are going to come tumbling down at every obstacle like the walls of Jericho. Sometimes, sometimes God calls you to something and it's going to be sheer futility. Like what he tells Ezekiel. They won't listen to you because they won't listen to me. Because they're a hard-hearted and stubborn people. Or a hard-headed is what he says, and stubborn people. But I'm going to make your head just as hard as theirs. So he's telling Ezekiel to go, but no one is going to listen. Now, folks, I want you to understand that what God chooses to do in his sovereign plan, that's God's business. What's our business is obeying the call. There are some of you here who are asked to do things, and you're not going to see the visible fruit or, or a sign of success in this life. There are some of you here who may, who may need to seek forgiveness. You, you, you need to repent of something and, and apologize and seek forgiveness. And the person that, that you've wronged is never going to forgive you. You still need to seek forgiveness. There are some of you here who are holding hurts and grudges and you're waiting on someone to, to come before you and, and, and seek forgiveness and they will never do that. There are some of you parents here who, 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 who maybe when your kids were young, you, you weren't the parent you, sh you wish you could have been. And you're reaching out to them and they're not going to respond. Sometimes God calls us to things that we don't get to see the change we want to see. We faithfully follow and we trust God to be the final vindicator, which is what he's going to do here for the Israelites. Okay? So God's call on your life is no guarantee that it's all rainbows and sunshine. But second, this is a profoundly theological matter. Okay, we have to remember here 
that what we are setting up is a clash of deities. In the pantheon of Egypt, who is the chief god? Pharaoh. And from our enlightened 21st century minds, he's just some guy with a crown. That was not their perspective. He was a god. So this, this, this scene right here is a clash of deities. God is about to go to war against the gods of Egypt, and the gods of Egypt are summarized and summed up in the person of Pharaoh. He is God to their people. So in this, we see that the people of Israel are God's firstborn son. So who's the firstborn of Pharaoh? The people of Egypt and his own son. You have abused, you have oppressed, you have murdered mine, O God of Egypt. Stand up and gird yourself for battle. And see if you can oppose the God of gods. You oppose mine, I will oppose yours. And in Egyptian thought, the heart was central to the being. Okay, we, last May we went to Chicago for Kay's graduation from Moody. We got to go to the Field Museum. And they have an enormous ancient Egyptian exhibit. And essential to their thought of the afterlife was that when you die, you would go before the gods and they would weigh your heart on a scale. And how you got into the eternal life, their version of heaven, was your heart had to be literally as light as a feather. And that sins and iniquities weighed your, hearts, your heart down and it calcified your heart and made it hard and heavy. And consequently then, you would be denied access to bliss and instead you would be gobbled up by the God of the dead. So in one sense, God is speaking their language. You're the God of Egypt and this part of you that is the most sacred in your religious thought, essential to your well-being and in the center of your person, I am absolutely sovereign over you are not beyond the sway of me. So it's a theological statement that God is superior and supreme over all opposing gods. But at the level of Pharaoh being a man, which is where we like to focus on because he was a man regardless of what they thought, we've got to remember a few things. We've got to disabuse ourselves of a fundamentally pagan view of God. Egyptian mythology, Greek mythology, uh, Mesopotamian theo uh, mythology, it's all the same. The gods work external to the person. If a god wants to influence behavior, he does it through threats or promises or, or lies, deception, whatever. But ultimately, you're in charge of you. The gods do not enter and... and, and uh, Affect your affections and your dispositions. The God of the Bible is not a pagan deity. He's not limited. And so we learn in Proverbs 21 that the heart is a stream of water and the Lord steers it as he will. The Lord takes a man who by his own admission is a hard, calloused man. 
hard man. And repeatedly throughout Scripture, we learn that what God frequently does in judgment is he takes a person and gives them exactly what they want. Did you know that that's the Bible's like, worst punishment is for God to give you what you want? You see it in 2 Thessalonians. The people refuse to believe the truth. They love the deceptions of the lawless one. So what does God do? Hold out his hands all day? He sends a strong delusion so that they will believe a lie. You want to oppose me? You want to resist me? Then I'm giving you what you want. And you're going to reap what you sow. In the coming chapters, 18 times, Pharaoh's heart is said to get hard. Three times, it's of his own volition. Six times, it says his heart is hardened, but there's, there's no sense of, of who's causing it. Nine times, it's attributed to the Lord. The Lord is on a quest here to make his name great. And so what he does is he uses Pharaoh's own disposition And he calcifies him into his own being so that the war is is protracted. So that God is able to systematically knock down every single sacred deity of Egypt by his judgments. And what God does here, the echoes of what God does here, last for centuries. So that centuries from then, in in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines are still quaking in their boots at what God had done back then. This is a theological battle. And God's going to make a point by giving Pharaoh exactly what his personality and tastes and desires are. Which is a hard heart against God. Now for you and for me, This is the kind of passage that makes it clear that you are not promised tomorrow. You are not promised repentance. So when repentance is offered, take it. Today is the day of forgiveness. You never know when it's going to be that the Lord demands an accounting of you. You never know when the Lord says, you have resisted me enough and enough is enough. So today, if you hear his voice, don't be hard as they were in the desert. Turn to Jesus and repent and believe and be saved while he offers it. Lastly, in verses 24 to 26, these are three of the most difficult verses in the Bible. Because if you look at your version of the text, it's very clear. It says Moses. We fill in the blanks. In the, in the Hebrew, there's no names listed. It's just his, his, his. So who is the his? In verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Who's the him there? Well, we like to think we know, but ultimately it could be the son. I think it makes more sense to see that it's Moses. But ultimately, we don't know. Zipporah steps in, and and she circumcises her son, and it says she touches his foreskin to Moses' feet. Again, it just says his feet. So it could be the boys. 
And feet, is that actual feet? Or there's a strong biblical precedent that feet is a euphemism for something else. But the language, the Lord sought, the Lord met him. That's the same Hebrew construction that's in Genesis when God shows up and wrestles with with Jacob. And at the end here, when it says in verse 26, so he let him alone, that's the exact same Hebrew construction in Genesis when God releases Jacob. So did God literally physically show up and snatch him up? Or, Or did Moses get sick? Or why didn't Moses circumcise his son? Was Some people try to say, oh, especially back in the olden days, they would say, oh, it must have been out of deference to his wife who didn't want it. It was distasteful to her. They tried to paint her out to be the bad guy. Well, that's kind of hogwash because the Midianites practiced circumcision too, except they did it as sort of an engagement rite. Now, I don't know about you. I'd rather be circumcised as an eight-day-year-old than right before I'm about to get married. Okay. So circumcising was not inherently distasteful to to Zipporah. So I think it's wrong-headed to see her as as angry. And what does it mean, a bridegroom of blood? Bridegroom. That that word, though, is used in non-marital settings to refer to anybody who is related by covenant. So what it appears to be is ritual language. And that's why in verse 26 it repeats it. It's then that she said, bridegroom of blood, as if this became a part of the official language of a circumcision ceremony. That by this act, the person who's related to me has now become a relative by virtue of the covenant in blood. But for the umpteenth time in Moses' life, his life is spared by the quick-thinking actions of a woman. What I believe rolled down is that he is sick or somehow incapacitated. Whether the Lord has him in a physical chokehold or it's an illness, Moses is incapacitated is what I believe. And I believe that after circumcising her son, she touches Moses. Now, in this, whatever you may think of it, you see several elements of the gospel You see the righteous wrath of God against Moses' sin. You see the substitutionary act of another. You see the mediating nature of Zipporah. You see how the blood applied to Moses propitiates God's anger against his sin. All this foreshadows the gospel. So we can hem and haw about what's going on. But understand that fundamentally, fundamentally the issue is Moses hadn't circumcised his kid and God was not happy about it. Was God just willy-nilly angry? Go back to Genesis 17 when God had instituted circumcision. And there it says that anyone who is not circumcised has broken faith and must be cut off from the people. Circumcision wasn't just a sign of God's covenant. It's so essential to the covenant that it itself is called the covenant of circumcision. Okay, it is fundamental to their understanding of relationship with God. Absolutely fundamental. And here you have 
the man of God, about to go off as the spokesman of God for this covenant, and he himself is in fundamental breach and violation of that covenant. Do you see the hypocrisy and the incongruity? And you may think, oh, that's so Old Testament. I recall a passage in Acts where a couple people tell a fib and something pretty strong happens to them. You know what I'm talking about in Acts 7? Ananias and Sapphira. And then we learn in 1 Corinthians that there's people dying because they are guilty of the body and blood of Christ by taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We must always remember that God is good and He is benevolent. But He is still the sovereign King of the universe And he is not to be trifled with. So God meets him on the way. And notice how it says he sought to kill him. That's kind of a weird figure of speech. Just a weird way. Does that mean that God like shot an arrow at him and and Moses dodged it? Oh man, I missed. Is that what that means? As if there's someone who can successfully escape and survive if God is seriously trying to kill them? No, God was pressing hard on Moses, but not squishing. And that's where there's grace. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He didn't squish Moses, but he was pressing. And in the pressing was the opportunity to make things right. Now, fundamentally for us, and I, and, I, and I gotta call it out. Moses here is guilty of selective obedience to the commands of God. He wants to obey the voice of God and go do something, but he has completely neglected the most fundamental of things, which was circumcising his son. How many of us are guilty of selectively following the commands of God? Moses here, if there was ever a person with a clear sense of God's call in their life, it's Moses. But God's call is not enough. He had been endowed with power, it says, not just authority, with power to work miracles and signs. That was not enough. When we think about our utility in ministry, And in service, we think in terms of our giftedness. We think in terms of the gifts of the Spirit. What gifts do we have for service? And you want to know what the real issue is? After last week, it should be clear. God doesn't care about your abilities. He can use a stick. But you know what God does care about? The fruit of the Spirit. He cares about your piety. He cares about your love. He cares about your trust. He cares about your obedience. So we're hung up on gifts of the Spirit, and God wants to see manifest in you the fruit of the Spirit. How many people are running around? You know, I try not to call out other preachers by name, but there are some big-name preachers who are running around 
doing ministry, and at the most fundamental level, they are in opposition to everything the Bible stands for. Don't take the crowd as a sign of blessing. You are under the wrath of God. Now you and me, we have a choice. This passage is not about rooting out the deep recesses of sin in our life. It's not talking about sinless perfection. But it is talking about a pretty brazen disregard for the clear commands of Scripture. Are you worried about impressing God with your gifts? Or are you trying to honor God with your trust and obedience? That's what impresses God. So much so. That later, he repeatedly says, I would rather have your obedience than your sacrifices. The sacrifices only exist because your obedience doesn't. So give me your obedience and you won't have to have the sacrifices. That's the logic. Moses is just starting out. Okay, so he's, he's taking baby steps along. And God is working with him. And God is working with us. But make no mistake about it, God cares about his people and their holiness in the world. So, you've said yes to the Lord. Will you take that first step? Will you proceed in faithfulness even though what God has called you to do may seem like it's an exercise in futility? And third, Will you remember that you and your holiness, your obedience, matter more to God than your skills, your gifts, and your abilities? Let's pray.